0: After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. That passage is from Revelation chapter 7. And... You may be aware our pastor has been preaching through uh, the first part of Revelation, just the very first part, about the seven churches. And as I listened to Casey Vance this morning and as we worshiped together and sang together, I thought about how truly it is every nation, every tribe, will one day all gather together, every language, and worship the Lamb. Because that's what the church is about. Now, I've thought about, since uh, Lyle has been talking about the seven churches, you know, we're talking about the good things and some of the things that they needed to correct in order to be the church that God wanted them to be. Well, then, what is the church supposed to be? And I think one of the places, the place I like to go to often is Acts chapter 2. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 today, beginning with verse 41. And what we're going to be talking about today is the early church, the first church before it began to have all its problems. Uh, churches don't have problems, right? If they didn't have problems, we wouldn't be studying the seven of them that had problems in Revelation. So I want us to go back to the very beginning. What is the ideal? What is church supposed to be like? Now, you know, I don't know what they call themselves. I think they called them — well, we know they called themselves Christians in Antioch later on. but you know, I, were they first — well, they couldn't be First Baptist Church of Jerusalem, surely not, but maybe they were first community church at Jerusalem. but it is in Jerusalem where the church started. Now, in some ways, this early church reminds me of something a place that I've read about. I have not visited there, but it's a hotel. Okay, now you're thinking, I've already lost it. But it's a hotel in uh, Los Angeles, in the Hollywood area of Los Angeles. And next time I go, which I rarely go to Los Angeles, I want to stay at this hotel. But I think that you have to make reservations way ahead of time. Now, you may look at that picture right there and think, that doesn't look like much, Landry. Why do you want to go stay there? Uh, you know, it d- definitely doesn't look like a five-star hotel. Well, it's a converted apartment complex from the 1950s. Um, it's a typical 1950s-style apartment building uh, in Los Angeles. And, uh, again, I, I haven't been there, but I've read about it. And I've seen pictures, obviously, and a video about it. It's called the Magic Castle Hotel. Now, the, again, it doesn't look like much. In fact, the pool area looks kind of lame compared to, to even some of our... Some of you have pools at your house that looks better than this. Uh, but it's, it's the magic, it's the magical touches that they talk about. Not real magic, but the fun things that they do. In fact, they have snacks 24-7, and we're not talking about the fun size candy bars. We're talking about big snacks. I've seen pictures of them that they, that they have, and you can get them delivered to your room or just go down to the lobby and get them any time. So that, that's a pretty big deal. I could list them for you, but we don't have time. Um, Their their continental breakfast, yeah, everybody has continental breakfast. But this is not like the Hampton Inn. They bring in freshly baked goods from a local bakery that's baked that morning. And uh, and by the way, if they don't have something you want for breakfast, just let them know and they'll go to the grocery store and get it for you. Again, I'm going to say all this is free. I have no idea how much a room night is. But (laughs) it sounds cool anyway, doesn't it? It sounds very magical. And ice cream, okay, that's my weakness. They have soft-serve ice cream every day, and they bring that out um, in the afternoon a little bit earlier if you want it, uh, maybe. And they always have vanilla, and they have another flavor. Now, they've turned down your bed. Now, there's no big deal if you've been to a really fancy hotel. I don't know if they leave chocolate on it or not, but they do leave you the weather report, which was probably pretty cool before we all had cell phones, and now we all can check the weather whenever we want to. Um, They cater to families. They have bathrobes for everybody. In fact, they have kid-sized bathrobes and kid-sized slippers. Now, I don't know. I probably wouldn't want to wear slippers, but they uh, and 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 they've had to do some adaptations since COVID. Of course, they were closed for a while, uh, as many places were around the country and in California. But that since they reopened, they have been able to just make some adaptations, and I'll share one of those in in just a moment. Oh, laundry. Because, you know, if you're going to go to Hollywood, you're you're going to stay in Los Angeles for a week, you need somebody to do your laundry. They wash, they dry, they fold it, and they wrap it up in brown butcher paper, tie it up with a string and put a sprig of lavender. Now, us guys, we don't care if it has a sprig of lavender or not, but isn't that pretty cool? And that, again, is part part of your room. And all that's pretty cool, but there's one thing, to me, it's why I really want to go. And that is called the popsicle hotline. Now you must think, well, Landry, you must really, really like popsicles for you to be excited enough to go to Los Angeles, Hollywood, stay at this funny looking place to get a popsicle. It's not the popsicle that I want. It's I want to be able to go to the pool and pick up that red phone and say, I would like a grape popsicle, please. And then they come out and they bring it to you. They're dressed up, they have white gloves. They bring it to you on a silver platter. And now because of COVID, they wear a mask. And they bring it to you and, and right at the pool. Now, that's pretty... I think that that's awesome. Again, it's not because it's a Popsicle. It's because I can pick up a phone and say, Hey, I want a Popsicle. And they'll bring it to me and act, treat me like royalty with my Popsicle. Whether you're 7 years old, you can get on the phone. Or you're 70, you can get on the phone. And in between and before and after... So, what does this have to do with the church? Well, the thing is, the Popsicle Hotline and all these other things are called moments. They are creating a moment. When you go home, you're going to remember, you, you probably aren't going to remember the color of the carpet, the bedspreads, even the room. But for the rest of your life, if you're a kid, you're probably going to remember the Popsicle Hotline that... that uh, that you just picked up the phone and got a Popsicle. Again, I don't know how good the Popsicles are, but you get to call on a red phone. And most kids don't even know what a red phone is, do they? (laughs) You probably have to explain it. You pick it up, you put it to your ear. Well, life is full of moments, and some we can't get enough of, and other moments we wish we could forget. And it's that thought of memorable and meaningful moments that I want us to talk about as a local body of believers, as the church. As First Baptist Church, good looks full. We should be about memorable and meaningful moments. At least that's what I get out of Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. And in order to create these kind of moments, then there are certain characteristics that we should have. And I believe that, that... In this passage, we'll find five characteristics of the New Testament church that we should be emulating. So let's look first at Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 41. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayer now we 're going to be coming back to verse 42 as we continue looking at this passage go to verse 41 this is basically a summary of what happened uh, on the in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost now the day of Pentecost was a Jewish festival, Jewish festival that uh, took place fifty days that's fifty days after the Passover and we know what happened during the Passover right. Passover uh, is when Jesus spent his last days on earth with his disciples before he was crucified. He had the Passover meal, which we now uh, call the Lord's Supper, uh, with his disciples, the night where he was betrayed by Judas and where uh, then he was crucified and then he rose again. So 50 days after that, there was this festival called Pentecost. So a lot of times we think about Pentecost, we think, oh, it's a, it's, it's, it was a new phenomenon. It really was a festival that they were already celebrating, but like the Passover, it got new meaning because of Jesus and what happened that day. So what, did, what happened that day? Well, prior to Pentecost, after Jesus was raised from the dead, He spent 40 days with his disciples and and made appearances with other people. And he commissioned his disciples to go make disciples of all nations. And then he ascended into heaven. So before his ascension, he basically gave a command. Now on the day of Pentecost, why is that important? Jesus said, go to Jerusalem, stay there until the Holy Spirit comes and gives you power. That's what we know about Pentecost, is the power of the Holy Spirit was, uh, came upon the believers that day. Now, there would have been a lot of people in Jerusalem. A lot of people, more than, than what we really think. And a lot of them would have been uh, from Eastern Europe, um, or the East, excuse me, the Eastern Roman Empire, uh, the Mediterranean area, including people from a wide variety of places and backgrounds. So there was just a lot of people and a lot of different languages. Now, some of those people may have been there because they came for uh, Passover and so they stayed through Pentecost. Others may have been part of the Jewish dysphoria, and they were residents there, but they still had their own ethnic backgrounds and their own languages. And so, verse forty-two seems to indicate about the that how the three thousand people. Now think about that, 3,000, that's a lot of people. How the 3,000 people were integrated into the church, the local church, the New Testament church. Until that time, it, they were, there had been about 120 that were in the first community church of Jerusalem. And so uh, they went from 120 to 3,120, uh, give or take uh, a number or two there. In just overnight, because of the work of the Holy Spirit. So, what I want us to see here is that uh, the first characteristic that we find of the church is, has to do with Christian discipleship or Christian education. So, that is, that's our first characteristic. Um, I think there's a slide that has that on there. Let's see we've got one that has the first characteristic maybe maybe it doesn't (laughs) okay the Christian education is more than careful examination Christian education is more than careful examination so what does that mean well the new Christians were devoted they they had a steadfast single mindedness and um they were devoted to these to four practices of Christian community. The apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. What is the apostles' teaching made of? Well, Jesus taught the apostles who then taught new believers. So subjects probably it would have included Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection. It would have included Old Testament teachings because the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament... God is pointing toward his redemptive purpose, as we know through Jesus Christ, and then also just the apostles own experiences and recollections and upon Jesus' ministry and teachings, including jesus' words. So they were devoted, they were sincere, they were steadfast and they were single minded in their devotion to God and in becoming who God wanted them to be, and in being discipled. So when I say that Christian education is more than just careful examination, they did more than just talk about and pour over the scriptures, because even non-believers who were Jews poured over scriptures and did not trust in Jesus. It was more than that. It was discipleship. Several years ago, uh, I say several years, three or four years ago, uh, Lifeway conducted a research project, and uh, our uh, our own Casey Oliver was the integral part of that of that research. And basically, we wanted to know what are some indicators um, that in the uh, of becoming a faithful, devoted follower of Christ. So it, we we looked at adults and talked to their parents, and what was it as these kids as they were growing up, what was it in their homes, in their lives, there were indicators that later as they became adults that they were faithful followers of Christ. And so we did all this research and spent all this time and and extensive research and came back with an answer that we thought, Is that it? And the answer was this, is that um The largest impact on a child's future spiritual growth, the largest impact, the largest indicator of a child's future healthy spiritual life is that she would read the Bible regularly while growing up. So boys and girls reading the Bible regularly while growing up was the biggest indicator by far of spiritual growth and of uh, spiritual maturity as an adult. Now, there were other indicators But you notice that I didn't say it was having a meal together, going to church. While that was one of them, it was reading the Bible regularly. And so I think about that when I think about the first characteristic about how in the early church they were paying attention to the apostles' teaching. That's one of the things they did was the apostles' teaching. So our job in the local church is to provide Christian education by teaching God's word. And equipping individuals and families with tools for personal and family discipleship. And this includes Bible reading, it includes application of biblical truths. It's true discipleship. It's for church attendance alone, life group attendance alone does not bring about spiritual transformation. And God's Word brings about spiritual transformation. So the second characteristic is that communion is more than conversation. And I want to look at, again, verse 42 and uh, and 43. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. So, they were in, they prayed. I, I love what Casey said about how uh, Korean Christians are known for their prayer life. I've heard for years wonderful stories about the Korean church and and uh, their commitment to prayer. Many of you uh, are committed to prayer. To be a true New Testament church, as modeled in Acts two. We all, as a community of believers and individuals, need to be devoted to prayer. Now, prayer in this passage may have referred to formal Jewish prayer hours in the temple, but it probably was broader than that. It probably talked about the Christian's practice of praying together in their homes. And you can think about those examples like when uh, Peter was in prison and they gathered in somebody's home specifically and prayed for Peter. Um, Of course, they didn't believe it when God answered that prayer, but they prayed for Peter. Also, there's the story of Lydia in Acts, where she and a group of women went to, uh, needed a place of prayer. And because in those days you had to have ten men to make up a synagogue, then they went to the river where they had a place of prayer. And what's interesting here is that not only were they having communion with God through prayer, but other people were noticing and I truly believe that when the Holy Spirit works and moves in a church, the community notices. Non-believers observed with reverent fear or with awe what was going on in the early church. From Pentecost to the days and weeks that followed. I mean, who couldn't notice that all these people speak in different languages and understood what was the preaching? Understood Peter's sermon, 3,000 people being added to the church. And also, what else were they noticing? They were noticing miracles. They were noticing wonders and signs, or miracles. Again, indicative of God's presence. Because when God's Holy Spirit moves, we see things happen that only God can do. So, both the observations of the non-believers and the miracles that were performed, they weren't a one-time event. They continued to occur, as we'll see in a few minutes. Again, back to that nothing less research that told us the number one indicator of a child's spiritual growth uh, was reading his Bible as he grew up. The second one was prayer. The second one was prayer. The second greatest indicator of a person's trajectory of growing spiritually, of being sanctified, is prayer. First was Bible reading, then uh, was is prayer. And, you know, a lot of conversations. So I talked about community you know, communing with God together and individually, how important it is. A lot of conversation goes on when we gather. I mean we're Baptists. We eat and talk. And uh don't have to be Baptists eat and talk, but we you know, be a Christian and you eat and talk. So um that's good. Because as you see in Acts 2, the people were doing life together. We should be doing life together. So should we be talking about our lives? We should be talking about what's going on in our lives. Conversation is good, an important part of our Christian fellowship. But when we get together as groups in our life groups and community groups and as a congregation on Sunday mornings, we have such a limited amount of time together. We need to make sure those conversations are in in proportionate to the amount of small amount of time proportionally as we should spend in prayer and worship and Bible study. So is it important? Yes. But it shouldn't here's what happens a lot of times and, and yes you, you know that I am often with preschoolers and kids but I have gone to an adult class every now and then not here at this church so I'm not talking about anybody here Um But we talk about everything under the sun and eat our donuts and drink our coffee and then we pray for two minutes and have Bible study for ten minutes and then, oh, time is up. Now, I'm not, you know, I can say stuff like that since since I do it too. I'm one of you, okay? I understand. But that's not what they were doing in the beginning of the New Testament church. They prayed during the week. They prayed when they gathered together. It was an integral part of what they did as a church. So when we pray and when we experience real communion with God through prayer, God responds. And people will notice again that we're different. And they'll see God at work in our homes and in our church. Another characteristic I want to point out is that it's about community. You know, community... I already mentioned coffee and donuts, so I know I'm in trouble. I saw a church member walk across the parking lot with donuts today. And by the way, I'll be searching for leftovers when we get done. But community is more than the coffee and donuts. What is community? Well, the new Christians developed themselves to fellowship and breaking of bread. Let's look again. We're going to look at verse 42. You're going to have it memorized by the time we get done today. Verse 42, let's look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to breaking bread, and to prayer. Now look at verse 44. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. And then verse 46. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. So basically, their fellowship was association, communion, close relationship, sharing what they had with one another. They had mutual meals together. They, see, what we do as Baptists is, and Christians is, is biblical, having meals together. Their prayer life, they had prayer together. And it set them apart as a entity. See, you know what's interesting is that they met in the temple courts so people saw them. They met in homes as well and uh, breaking bread probably referred to the Lord's Supper like we celebrate like Jesus' modeled before uh, his crucifixion but it also included what they call an agape meal or a, a love meal that they would have together in fellowship with one another. In fact, one uh, translation paraphrases it this way: and all believers lived in a wonderful harmony. Now, wouldn't that be great if we all lived in a wonderful harmony? You know why they did? Because they had spiritual unity, a common purpose. Now, as we look at these churches in Revelation, we see something broke. As you, I've been reading through uh, some of the some of Paul's letters, something broke. But this is before things broke. And the word here in verse 46 for together, it's usually found in Acts to signify a unified purpose. It connotes a oneness of heart and mind of the early church. They were of one, in fact, Acts 4, just two chapters over, verse 32 says, Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But instead, they held everything in common. They shared meals in their homes. They fellowshiped with one another. They prayed with one another. And there was a sense of joyous, of joyfulness in their gatherings. As we sung a while ago, joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Our joy comes from the Lord, and they joyfully met together. And life was not easy for them. Even in the early days before persecution broke out, there were still a lot of things not to be joyful about. But they were joyful in the Lord. They were unified in purpose. I think a few years ago, Lyle mentioned uh, a book called The Boys in the Boat about the 1936 um, varsity crew team in the... 1936 Berlin Olympics. It was an eight oar which had nine men in it. If you don't, if you can't figure that out, just read the book. I, I learned more about. it. See, I'm from West Texas, so I didn't know anything about rowing boats uh, much. And so a crew would. achieve. but what this racing is is, you know, it's those long slender boats that you see now. They still have those on the Olympics, and they're all rowing in harmony together. So I learned a lot by reading the book, not just about that. But there was an underdog team who made the Olympics and who won in the eight-or varsity crew team from the University of Washington. Not really known for water out there either. I mean, they got the ocean. But crew teams that won were more from New England. Now, there's lots of fascinating stories about the individuals who finally came together as a cohesive unit. There's fascinating stories in the book about the boat builder, I mean, about the coach. But the I want to say something about the boat builder. He doesn't get much attention. But the book talks a lot about George Yeoman Pocock, who built what they didn't call them boats either, they call them shells. Um, and he's quoted throughout the book, I don't know if he's a believer, but he had incredible wisdom And I just want to read just a little bit of what he said. He said, it's hard to make that boat go as fast as you want to. The enemy, of course, is resistance of the water. As you have to displace the amount of water equal to the weight of men and equipment. But the very water is what supports you. And the very enemy is your friend. So is life. The very problems you must overcome also support you and make you stronger in overcoming them. And think about the early church and the problems that they faced and would face. He says, To see a winning crew in action is to witness a perfect harmony in which everything is right. That is the formula for endurance and success, rowing with the heart and head as well as physical strength. And then finally, this. This sums up what we're talking about. It isn't enough for the muscles of a crew to work in unison. Their hearts and minds must also be as one. You see, God does honor unity in the church. Church is a place where everybody should feel welcome. We should, we should welcome people who don't look like us, who don't talk like us, who don't smell like us, who don't you know, think like us, even who don't vote like us. Everyone should be welcome into the church in Jesus, through Jesus Christ. Our life groups are not closed affinity groups. where only people who look, smell like, and look alike come. They should be places that are open groups where people are welcome. You know, we just, two weeks ago, we had VBS. And uh, first time, you know, we didn't get to have it at the church last year. It was a wonderful week. We had kids from all different places. I had one child uh, whose family was about to... Uh, getting ready to to, to move to uh, Kuwait. They're not Kuwaitis, but they're about to move to Kuwait. And uh, you never know the impact that you have when you welcome people, all people, into the fellowship. And what we... if If we just... Care about the people that are from our same socioeconomic status, or same, uh, again, same hairstyle, um, whatever it is. If we only welcome them, that's conformity, not unity. And what the church had, and what you see on the day of Pentecost, was unity, not conformity. And what unites us? We're not going to agree on everything. We're not. Most of the things we disagree about as a church are insignificant compared to the things we agree about. And we do agree in the gospel. And so that's what our, unites us, is our devotion to God through his son Jesus, the gospel. Our common purpose of reaching, teaching, and ministering in Jesus' name. So church ministry is accomplished in community. Another characteristic we find is that it's compassion. If you look again at verse 44, this time we'll read verse 45 as well. Now, all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all they had need. So, they showed compassion. Now, compassion is more than casseroles. Now, casseroles are good. If I have a need in my family, you can bring all the casseroles you want. I have a freezer. <laughs> but here's instead of the instead of the believers at this point just having common ownership of their real estate and goods. They sold possess, their possessions on a continual basis and then shared those and helped with those in need. And also uh, in Acts, you may be familiar with the story of, um, in nice and Sapphira, who they sold property, but they came in. To the church and told them that they sold everything that they had like they're supposed to. And you know what? That was a fatal mistake for both of them. Because God takes unity in the church very seriously. And when we lie and when we act like we're doing what God wants us to do. But then we come to the church and by our appearances it seems like we're doing what we're supposed to do. But we really aren't. Our hearts are not devoted to Christ. God takes that seriously. I'm not saying that somebody's going to come down the aisle and drop dead, but that's what happened to Ananias and Zafara. And one of the best examples in the for me is how the Christians sold their possessions on a continual basis uh, and did things. We can find lots of examples, but one I like is this one: is is uh, Agabus, and I think I have a picture. Uh, you know, we had photographers from Lifeway that were there and took all these. Not really. So Agabus came down from Antioch, which what happened in Antioch? That's where they were first called Christians. He, he came down um, from Antioch to Jerusalem. Um, and actually... The prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Okay, I got all that confused. One of them named Agabus stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world, and this took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by the means of Barnabas and Saul. So the the, uh, Antioch church helped the Jerusalem church. Casseroles are great ministry tools, by the way. They can be frozen and and uh, by either the giver or the receiver. Um, this week we prepared a meal for a family who needed a meal, and um, just as it wasn't a casserole, we're just close as lasagna, and and just as it was about to get done, our uh, heating element on our stove, our oven, went out, and um, uh, so we took it. And so it wasn 't frozen, but we hoped that it was done, and it turned out to be it was done <laughs> Why I told you that, I have no idea <laughs> but I say that because actually, because our church is a compassionate church, one of the most compassionate churches I know when somebody 's in need, sometimes and all this happens unbeknownst to many of us but sometimes People have financial need that we provide. Sometimes people just need a ride to, uh, to the radiation center or to the clinic to get chemotherapy. Sometimes we just have a need because we're lonely. Somebody calls or texts or comes by and visits. Sometimes somebody just needs free childcare. Sometimes somebody just needs the Lord's Supper taken to their home or to their room in the nursing facility because they're not able to come here. We're a very compassionate church. Sometimes we care for people in our community. We we help support the help center. Uh, We collect food for families um, who can't... um, The kids wouldn't have anything to eat on the weekends if we didn't provide food for them through the elementary school. So all of this done is done compassionately, but it's not just because we're a compassionate people. We do it because our compassion comes through our relationship with Jesus Christ. We do it in the name of Jesus. So finally, there's one more characteristic that we see in verses 46 and 47. And I know you thought we would never get to verse 47, but here we are. Starting in verse 46, every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Notice in verse 46 and 47, both in, there's a phrase in both of those verses, every day. The early church did what they did on a daily basis. They, they were Jews who were believers. And so they remained loyal to their Jewish heritage and they met together in the temple. The temple was a major meeting place. And so it gave the new Christians an opportunity to demonstrate and to tell others about their faith in Christ. They praised God together. That's a part of what we do as believers is praising God together. Praying together as well. And for a time they were even respected by Non Christian Jews. We know that changed later, but they were respected for a time by non Christian Jews. And all of this, the result of all of this, is God bringing people to Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ, through a saving relationship with Jesus. And who did the growing? God grew the church. You know, ministry is messy. It just is. Because families are messy, people are messy. And so because ministry is messy, and people are messy, and families are messy, ministry doesn't start at 9 a.m. on Sunday and conclude at 12 noon. It begins with a consistent, growing relationship with Jesus as a church, as families, and as individuals. Ministry, then, is about creating those meaningful and memorable moments That's what we do as a church. Meaningful and memorable moments in our homes, in our community, and as we gather together in our life groups and together as the body of believers. And those moments are going to transcend the day of the week. They transcend Sunday. These are moments that encourage Christian education and discipleship. Moments that encourage communion with God through prayer. Moments that encourage community among us as believers. Moments that encourage compassion for others. And moments that provide consistency in following Jesus. And these are moments, unlike a popsicle, these are moments with eternal consequences. Ministry, doing church, is more than attending on Sunday. It is obeying Christ's command to go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them and teaching them in his name. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you established the church. I thank you that in your word you show us what the church should be about, how to do church. Thank you that we are the church. And thank you that we join believers all over the world as the capital C church. Dear God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. And we want to be the church that you call us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.